Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. actually trying to hide how starstruck I am at the moment um, because today we are so fortunate to be joined by Alice Pung. If you don't know Alice Pung, she is an award-winning writer, editor, teacher and lawyer based in Melbourne. She is the best-selling author of Unpolished Gem and Her Father's Daughter and the editor of the anthologies Growing Up Asian in Australia and My First Lesson. How are you Alice? Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's our pleasure. Honestly, it's it's our pleasure. Um, I guess to kickstart things, you know, we're curious to hear what you have been up to recently. Um, obviously, I just gave a very quick snapshot of your career, um, but we're keen to hear on the things that you've been up to. Have you picked up any quarantine hobbies? <laughs> oh, that that's an excellent question. Um, so what I've been doing in quarantine, because I've, Oh, you know, we had an unexpected surprise this year. Uh, I, I got pregnant and then I had a baby during quarantine. So we now have three kids unexpectedly, but very, very, very happy because um, I have two sons and now I have a daughter as well. I would have been happy with three boys. No. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But in terms of um, of quarantine, I so you might not know this, but I've been working – I've never been a full-time writer, so I've always had other work. I've always had legal work, so had that mm. since I was 23. Mm. So I've been working at the Fair Work Commission, my part-time job, until I went on maternity leave and just oh, finishing nice. the final edits of my um, latest book, which will come out next year. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. What's oh, it going to be about? Oh, <laughs> it's Can so you tell us? Or is yeah, like of course scoop? I can. I can. inside <laughs> scoop. <laughs> Uh, but it's just a coincidence. So I started it four years ago, um, and it's about a 16-year-old girl who gets herself pregnant, and she lives in um, on the 14th floor of a housing commission flat, and her mother is so pissed off that she locks her daughter up uh, for, for 100 days. So that's why the book is called 100 Days. And then this oh. pandemic happened. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. How, that's weird how that's that is so yeah. weird. Yeah, but I, I did a, <laughs> I did write the book in six months because of the pandemic. No, <laughs> and it was already <laughs> set in the flat. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> wow, amazing. No, absolutely. What was the inspiration for the book, my ask? Oh, that, was that's, like a oh, that is such a great question, Jeff, because um, when I was pregnant with my first child, uh, you know, I was in my 30s by then, one of my biggest worries was that my mum would actually make me do the whole month of, um, you know, if, if you're Chinese, you have to stay at home for a month. You can't have mm. showers. You have to wear socks in the heat of the summer. So I was worried that. about that. Yeah, wow. yeah. Uh, for, for traditional Chinese people mm. in Southeast Asia, Singapore, you know. Um, mm. And so right. the rationale for that was thousands of years ago, you, you did these things to keep yourself safe. So if you drank water that wasn't boiled or hot, you'd get um, – viruses 
if you went outside without wearing socks in the winter of the Chinese winter, you'd get sick, yeah, that kind of thing. But people were doing it in Singapore when it's really hot. You know, they're not allowed to turn on air conditioning. Among the more ridiculous things um, uh, are two things. You can't read books and you can't watch television because it, it will cause oh. you uh, bad eyesight later in life or something. But some of the confinement rules make some sense. Like if you have a lot of ginseng, it warms up your blood and, you know. <laughs> so, mm. so some of it makes sense, others don't, but I thought I'd get the whole package uh so <laughs> and then I thought what would I mean I'm a growing woman but what would it be mm. like if you were 16 and completely under the control of a parent who's not that well educated and who wants mm. to enforce all these rules on you <laughs> yeah mm. wow amazing amazing I mean did you find that I mean it, it's kind of like method acting right in, but in, I guess in you know this context in a book like I guess the fact oh, that true. you had yeah. to be confined and quarantined so to speak did you find that actually helped more with how you wrote? Oh Isabel that that's interesting because um during lockdown I had a really good lockdown just because mm. when I was growing up um <laughs> I was quite confined to be honest in this little concrete house in the suburb mm. of Raybrook, uh, the streets were considered unsafe. So as a girl, I was home all the time. I just hated it. And I had to look after all these younger siblings. Mm. So I guess the experience wasn't this lockdown. It was just my experiences growing up feeling quite trapped because we didn't have mm. the internet then. Um, so there wasn't much to entertain me, you know. Mm. I guess that's mm. how I became a reader, uh, because there weren't many other voices as well. My dad was always at work, so it was just my mother with four kids. And um, so the other voices I heard, besides the television, were, were the books that I read. And that, mm. that really helped a lot psychologically. I think yeah, Facebook I would have helped a lot if I was here. <laughs> but we didn't honestly have feel that. like you're not missing out on much. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like the, the Facebook demographic has gotten so much older like my parents literally joined <gasps> facebook two weeks ago oh wow to start selling stuff because <laughs> their friends are telling them on wechat they were like no one sells stuff on ebay anymore you got to sell it through facebook they're on facebook no, yeah, marketplace no. your parents yeah facebook marketplace that, is a great oh, place to buy incredible. stuff incredible <laughs> So that's a that's a top tip, you know. The Asian people talk, and that's. Oh, <laughs> and that's how they my grandma's obsessed it. with Facebook right now. So Your yeah. grandma, so like, my grandmother, she she like always shares like the memes that would have been super funny like ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and they say old people but, uh, can't yeah. change. It's yeah. amazing yeah. they do. They yeah. they can adapt to technology. And <laughs> I love that. Um, but this is, a, this is a great segue, Alice, because um, you were talking about your family and we were kind of interested. Could you sort of tell us about your family and sort of their experience of moving to Australia? Yeah, of course. So um, my parents were both born in Cambodia, but they're Chinese, so they're ethnically Chinese. And um, as a lot of people know, in 1975, Cambodia had this terrible revolution. Uh, there was this leader called Pol Pot who you know, put the entire country into slavery, essentially. He wanted to create a pure race of Khmers, which are the ethnic Cambodians, which meant that he wanted to cleanse the country of the Vietnamese. They were the first to be purged. And then the Muslims, the Chan Muslims and the Chinese as well. Luckily, my dad uh, was dark-skinned enough that he could pass as a Cambodian. 
And so they survived the killing fields, my father. My mum survived by nicking off to Vietnam <laughs> during that time. And uh, they came to Australia in 1980. So I was in utero. I was uh, in my mum's stomach eight months along when she came to Australia. Mm. What was that sort of experience integrating in Australia like for, for your parents and also for you just growing up? Oh, well, um, my parents are quite different, Jeff, because my dad is 10 years older than my mother. And as the first stage of ethnic cleansing in Cambodia, they, they destroy your culture. So they close down all the Chinese schools, which meant that the Chinese mm. students, um, if you were in grade one, you know, that was the end of your education, which unfortunately for my mother, that was how old she, she was in grade one. And so she's barely literate in her first language. Because my dad's 10 years older, he was about, um, you know, 15 or 16. So he, he had a year 10 education. So he's a, a lot more educated than my mum. And um, mm. so I guess we were a lot like a lot of migrant families in that the women stayed at home and they were locked out by their inability to speak the language. So my mum stayed at home, had, had kids, you know, <laughs> did a lot of outworking. Um, as women did during that time. My auntie sewed clothes, my mum made jewellery in the garage and um, she was very frustrated because she you know, had this um, business that was under the brick. She thought that if the government found out about what she did, she'd be chucked in jail and would be sent to foster homes. She had no understanding of the law because she'd never signed an employment contract. She you know, had no idea about these things. Mm. Um so she thought it was her fault that she wasn't paying taxes on the $2 or so she earned per ring. And I think a lot of women of her generation thought the same thing. They didn't realise that they were being exploited. They thought what they were doing was illegal, which it was, <laughs> um, but mm. it wasn't their fault. Yeah, no, that's so understandable. I mean, I guess to follow on from that, so uh -huh. obviously you, you started your career within law, um, I'm curious to understand why you chose law as, um, I guess, the starting point of your career, if I'm correct in saying that. And I guess consequently from that, you know, your decision to take up writing, um, which is typically a path that, you know, I, I say that with, I say that, you know, in quotes, a path that mm. not many Asians take. Um, so what did your family think of this decision in the end as well? And what do they think of it right now? So that's a great question. It's a two-pronged question. Uh, firstly, why did I study law? And secondly, mm -hmm. what, what got me into writing? Because uh, most Asian families push you into doing law or medicine or, or something secure, hey, dentistry, <laughs> accounting. Correct. And yep, I, correct. I completely correct. understand um, where that comes from, you know, having come from absolute poverty to mm. to having a middle-class kind of existence. It's, it's quite good. <laughs> it's quite good mm -hmm. not to worry about, um, the government locking you up or not having enough money, that kind of thing. But I got into law, and I'll be completely honest, because when I go to school visits, I'm honest with the students, just because I got the marks. And I hadn't expected to get the marks because in year 12 I had a nervous breakdown. Uh, you know, people use that term lightly, oh, I had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but I really did have the nervous breakdown to the point where I couldn't, um, you know, I didn't realise when to eat or sleep or do anything except breathe. <laughs> I had to be instructed to do these things. I completely broke down. And so um, I didn't think I'd get into university. But your brain is an incredible thing. 
uh, if you've studied consistently, I hate sounding like an Asian parent, but it, it's actually um, what you what you have in your brain, it retains itself. Because when I sat those year 12 exams, I was, uh, you know, on autopilot. I had no idea what I was writing because I had that nervous breakdown. Could have been gibberish. I couldn't even get myself to those exams. <laughs> my parents um, had to have my timetable and wake me up and say, now you you just have to do it, and you don't. Doesn't matter if you fail. Just come back home. Just do these exams, mm. and um, I did quite well. I think I did. Mm. Um, so I did well enough to get into law, which was a big surprise for everyone. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so my parents said, "Look, you got into law. Don't waste your marks." And so I didn't. And that's the honest truth. <laughs> I was mm. uh, not very good at maths, so I didn't have to do any subject that required maths. So I did English and literature and history and political science. Um, and that couldn't even get me into this profession that I really wanted to join, which was teaching. It needed some kind of maths. So I did law because mm. I got these great marks. <laughs> and during the course of my law degree, I got into employment law, which is where I've been since I was um, 25. Mm. Yeah. So for the past 15 years. And that's significant for me, employment law, because I've spent my life with uh you know, men and women who've never had an employment contract in their lives, who uh, don't understand their rights and entitlements, who can't read, <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 And I feel that's such a nice, um, I, I guess, you know, transition from, you know, your your mother's experience of, you know, being exploited under, I, 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 I can assume as very onerous working conditions. So I think it's such a lovely kind of transition now that you're now in this field where you can actually help people like her um, ostensibly who um, are exploited and uh, and who typically come from, you know, minority communities and are marginalised and don't understand their rights. So that's fantastic. Um, but I'm curious to hear, you know, that to, for the two prong, like the second prong of this Oh, question, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, what kind of drove you to writing? I mean, you alluded before about you know, your love for books growing up, was that an extension of that passion? Um, yeah, Isabel, it's, it's, um, it's not really an extension. I don't want to sound like a wanker, but it, it, was, what, <laughs> it was what sustained me and it has nothing to do yeah. with uh, getting published. It, was nothing, it has nothing to do with, you know, having readers even. I kept a journal when I was about nine or eight years old just because the teachers told me to keep a journal and then when I was nine, at the end of my eighth year, my sister Alison was born. And because my mother was working all the time in the garage, just crazy hours, 12 hours a day, I was um, nine years old and I was responsible for this newborn baby a lot of the time. After school, I'd have her for four or five hours because my mum was working. Now, if you remember back to your childhood, when you were about seven or eight, four or five hours seemed like an eternity because time moves mm. slower so for my two-year-old, you know, a year ago was half his lifetime. And that's how time works when you're younger. And I hated having a baby because my parents were so stressed um, that they just kept saying to me, I mean, they kept warning me, never shake a baby. If you shake a baby, their brains are so soft, you'll give them brain damage. So <laughs> it sounds funny, but that was, that was what got me into writing. I didn't want to shake a baby. And at times... You hear from grown women who are mothers in their 40s and they write honestly that, oh, I'm so fed up, you know, I, I almost shook my baby. The level mm. of restraint you needed as a nine-year-old not to shake a baby 
So I just write these um, huge angry tracks in my diary saying, Mum and Dad, mm. you know, well, how dare they do this to me, F this, F that. It wasn't literary, it wasn't literature, but it was a way to keep me sane. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and sometimes a pen would dig through four or five pages because I was so angry. Mm. And when I was in my 20s, I looked back over one of these diaries and they were so bitter and so, like, you know, so full of profanity because that's how people talked back in Braybrook. <laughs> they weren't, that, like, it had nothing to do literary at all. Um, but I just remember reading an entry and it was about my, my sister Alina who was, you know, one of, one of my favourite people in the world. My siblings are, we're very close. But my mum and dad had just told us that they were having another baby and what I'd written was, why didn't they ask me first? That's not fair. Mm. <laughs> As no, if my okay. parents should need to ask me about their reproductive, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, so, but but I, I knew I'd be looking after this other baby. I was so angry. Yeah. But reading it as an adult, I found it funny. Um, and I guess that's where my writing voice came from in my 20s. I looked at these angry diaries, which I, I really, you know, <laughs> they've got no literary merit. You should burn them because they're just... They're angry and kind of hateful, and mm. they're also kind of funny because they're coming from an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old's mm. perspective. So that's what got me into writing. It was to let out these very um, strong emotions I had that I couldn't let out any other way. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it was a necessity to keep my mm. sanity, I think. <laughs> mm. Do you st- do you find that that still drives you in writing these days? I mean, obviously nine-year-old eight-year-old you are very but I guess you know this this drive to um to have writing as an outlet and I guess you know a means for obviously expression but you know in a more profound way oh yeah definitely um so I never write because I've got answers to things if mm. some writers write because they've actually found answers to their life questions, which is, you know, mm. terrific. I've always written because there's a question I want to resolve or some feeling that I need to mm. um, work out for myself, actually, even in my fiction. And so that's where my stories come from. And often I don't work out that feeling, but, you know, at least I ask a few more interesting questions along the way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel that so much. Just uh, I've, I never really understood the idea of like expression growing up. Uh-huh. It was it was not something that was like quite foreign to me. I think it was just the the methodical way in which my parents enforced their teachings on me and how <laughs> pra- practice was the way you'd you'd get good at something versus yeah. trying to I guess holistically understand mm. it and then express it in your own way. And it wasn't really until quarantine until I felt like I had this urge to do something sort of without too much thought and that was like it really resonates with just what you were saying um in terms of just not having an answer at the start and for me it was painting yeah so not having anything in the top of my mind uh and just picking up a brush and just going Mm. and somehow if you i've I've found that if you just sort of empty your mind a little bit which sounds like super cheesy no it doesn't (laughs) (laughs) but just if you keep going eventually your brain starts to fill in the pieces like kind of when you're reading a book and it's words and your brain starts to like build mm. the story in your head um so that no that's great i think it's a, i think it's a very useful way of mm. trying to understand i don't know a part of your life and, or questions as you were saying and f- i guess for me this period is just kind of how i was feeling and mm. just seeing the colors i use and seeing the final product is always incredibly interesting 
Have you painted before, Jeff? No, no. The oh, paintings aren't no. very good. Just, just full, full disclosure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know art is subjective, but no, they're not very good. But it's still, it's, it's quite a fun thing. Like, mum's been painting a lot and that's kind of how um, I started. But she's very much, again, very methodical watching YouTube videos. <laughs> and her paintings are amazing. Yeah. She does a lot of landscapes and stuff. But, but for me, I just end up painting weird faces and wow. um, using, yeah, yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't know if like... I've, I'm tempted to maybe like do a few, I don't know, therapy sessions. Just like bring them along. What do you, what oh, do you think about doing? You no, should. Just, just for curiosity. Yeah, I reckon I should. And it's you also should. just this whole thing around you know removing stigmas around therapy as well. Because oh. I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah. I want to have a conversation with someone who might, you know, pick my brain apart a little bit. Yeah. You should. You yeah. should totally do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon wow. it'd be a good experience. Uh, but again, segueing from family a little bit and on this and this topic, uh, congratulations on your little one. Oh, I remember, thank you. <laughs> yeah, when we um, we emailed you, you were sort of, you just brought that up and we were super excited. But uh, how's the experience of parenting been, and especially during COVID? Oh, it's been um, quite good. Just because when I was pregnant, I moved back in with my parents for the extra support. And um, it's it's strange living with your parents when you're almost forty, as opposed mm. to when you're because te- mm. they still treat you a little bit <laughs> like you're sixteen, you know. <laughs> and and even moving with two kids, they treat you like like you're their kid, but they have these extra kids, they're, they're grandkids. So, yeah, <laughs> I just yeah, it, it's been um, a really good experience to to live with my mum and dad, and um, it's been interesting because. Uh, I didn't really. Your parents are a set age for you, I think, in your mind, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. Very true. And very I noticed true. they were getting older because I'm getting older too. So that that was what I noticed during COVID, that my parents are in that vulnerable group. I always thought they were, you know, in their mid forties or fifties, but they're not. So that that was what I realised as well. Mm. And yeah, no. Yeah. As for parenting, um. You default to the way you were parented unless you're really conscious of it. And that, that's mm. what happens. You have the best of intentions, you know. Mm. <laughs> but then when when you're um you know, when your buttons are pushed, you just default to what the way you were parented and you just have to be so conscious not to do that. <laughs> well that's actually like my next question, Alice. Yeah. So, you know, on this podcast we've talked a lot about our upbringing and how this has played such a you know crucial role in shaping who we are and our development. Um, and I guess I'm curious as to, I mean, you've talked, you've echoed about it before, but you know, how were you raised and has this been influential in how you have raised or I guess are going to raise your children? Oh yeah, I was raised, my my dad, um, who, who I'm probably closer to, I love my mum a lot, but I think I'm closer to my dad because we can talk and my because mm. my dad has more English, yeah, and he understands. Uh, the, the more language you have that you understand of someone, the, the more you know them wholly. So mm. my um, Chinese, this dialect called Diodil, is frozen in time, so it's an eight-year-old's level. So I can only relate to my mother as an eight-year-old would relate to a parent, and she's the same with me. So she talks in orders, yeah, and, and um, instructions and things like that. Uh, so she'll mm. tell me to do something or not to do something. Um, but, you know, my father's read my books. So he mm. sees me as an adult, mm. whereas 
it's interesting. My mother still sees me as, um, I don't know how she sees me because you can never fully understand another person. Yeah, I, I was raised, um, so my father had great expectations of me. He hoped I'd go to university. And my mother was always worried that if I went to university, I wouldn't get married because men don't like women who, you know, know too much and mm. just that kind of thing. And mm. she had expectations of me. She hoped that I'd live an easy life, that I'd marry someone um, who, who might give me a good life <laughs> so mm. I wouldn't have to do much work. She's worked since she was 13. So it's these differing expectations that made my um, adolescence quite rocky with my mother. Um, mm. And even today, she, because she's one of um, eight or nine children, so her parents use control as a primary method of parenting. So she just passed that on to me. And, of course, if you're raised in Australia, you don't stand with control like you, you rebel against it, especially mm. if it's unquestioned control. Uh, if, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. she's so great with the grandchildren, just mm. so wonderful. Uh, and you need to control a toddler. You need to set down the rules. You need to uh, not give them too many sweets. So she's wonderful, you know, <laughs> with mm. younger mm. children. Um, mm. But it was just difficult in my teenage years, just really hard. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting because, um, I mean, I think Jeff and I have talked a lot about, I guess, this dissonance between, you know, how we've been raised, but also mm. the kind of values that we want to impart onto our children if we have children. Like, you know, this idea of often, you know, let's say familiar relationships in Australia, in white families, it's like based on friendships. Yes. Then control, <laughs> which I think, you know, does happen a lot in Asian families because I think that control does stem from this you know feel your piety and having this hierarchy in a family mm, so yeah. you're, you know you're, you're as a child you have to defer to your parents authority like no matter what um the circumstance so I, I think that's quite interesting that you raise that and I wonder whether that's something that you actively I guess try not to do with your children I mean I think you just said before about how often sometimes you you know some of your parents I guess the how you've been raised sometimes often seeps through how you parent do you find that mm. there are aspects of um, how you've been raised that you don't want to pass on, like that, like such as this control, or do you find that it happens almost subconsciously? Oh, yeah, I really am very conscious about that. Um, mm. Just because I just don't want to use control as a primary means of relating mm. to my child, uh, which could work if, you know, if the whole society was, as you mentioned, Isabel, based on this hierarchical structure, it would be fine, but it's not, uh, you know, we're in this liberal democracy where kids from a very early age at school know that they have a voice and they have feelings and that kind of thing that <laughs> that's often um, not neglected but often put to the side in some Asian families, <laughs> you know. So I don't want to do that, but sometimes, to be honest, when I get angry, I, I just... Um, I yell out instructions, do that right now, you know, that, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And yeah. I there's also a fine balance because you don't want them to be spoilt brats and you don't want them to have equal relationship in the family because you're the, you're the parent. You make mm. the important yeah. decisions. I've met yeah. kids who have equal relationships with their parents. It takes them half an hour to get their shoes on. Like that, that's 
not the sort of thing I want. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing though. It's like sometimes I do kind of, I I love the idea of like friendships and families, but at the same time, I I couldn't bear the thought of like my child calling me by my first name. Like, oh my god, you know what I mean? Something that I just will not stand for. Yeah. So I'm yeah. So I I think it's interesting how I guess all three of us are I guess this in this in between where we have you know you know grown up in in a Western country like Australia where you know things like the individual is you know valued, but at the same time we have this appreciation for. Authority? Is that weird? I don't know. No, yeah, no, really I, cool. I, I like that. I get that. <laughs> yeah. I get that. Yeah, I, yeah, you have this great respect for authority, which makes us actually really good people to work with. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've never had problems with your managers unless they've been. Mm-mm. I mean, the problems have probably come from their side, not yours. You know, your ideal Asian Australians are ideal workers. They're pleasant. They they have this innate respect for authority. Um, which is ingrained in us, in our culture. <laughs> you know? mm. Yeah, mm. sometimes to our detriment because then, mm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> we literally just had an episode around uh, diversity and leadership and we, we touched on a lot of these points where it's, for us, it's like we're, the whole thing and this whole theme that we've had talking about parenting is balance. Yeah. It's like mm. the idea of balancing. How do you balance passing on the good stuff and but also retaining things that you feel are important so it's like i want to give you more freedom than i got but not too much yeah yeah, and yeah. it's like that's that's the, that's the thing i think about so much it's like yeah i i don't want to restrict if i do have kids i don't want to restrict them and i want to narrow their perspective or like the the, the realm of possibilities of things yeah. they could do yeah. oh how wonderful but, yeah but, <laughs> but at the same time sometimes i notice my mom coming out of me just like the the way i approach some things um i think a big one for me is just being around very high emotion situations uh-huh. i i just can't take it mm. in the sense that i feel very uncomfortable i don't know what to do because from a young age it's always just been just suck it up oh be stoic yeah yeah i know what you mean just yeah just oh, just do it yeah and, and so it's a it's a very difficult thing because i've noticed sometimes i i pass on um this mindset uh-huh. to other people and it can be like insensitive at times so it's, it's really about being it's difficult being cognizant about these things because then you notice you yourself drift one way or the other and you run into this whole like dilemma situation. So it's it's one thing I guess as I've gotten older, I've thought a lot more about. So it's really keen. It's really good to hear your perspective, perspective on it, Alice, and how you're sort of managing it. But uh, yeah, I feel like for us, like we're we're at a crossroads, aren't we? We're we're mm. we're kind of the gatekeepers or the guardians of past runners of, of our parents' culture, mm. and our decision of how we pass it on is going to have very long lasting effects. Yeah, that's Mm. so true. Um, Mm. One of my friends said to me, and she's an older lady, she said, you can parent your kids however you want to. Um, No one's stopping you. Uh, But you just got to think about the consequences. And if you use control as your primary mode of interacting with your kid, in 10 years' time, that kid is going to be bigger than you and hopefully stronger than you and smarter than you. And um, your power is only going to diminish. And then how, how are you going to, you know, you're just going to have to keep asserting that control even though you're shrinking. And I thought that's so true. You're not going to be in charge forever. Um, mm. 
So you've got to have a good relationship with your kid. You can't just boss them around all the time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Also, I feel like something like control often breeds emotions like resentment, and like I feel like that's yeah. and guilt and all sorts want. of things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, guilt's really a big don't... one. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think it's interesting that yeah, in spite of like, I guess our age difference, like these sentiments are still like they still hold so strong, mm. and I guess it's such a common theme in you know being Asian in Australia. Oh, it's about so true. I mean, in lockdown, yeah. to be completely honest, I was still scared of my mum, and I'm almost forty. Like, you know, <laughs> she is shorter than me. I'm like, oh, what if I piss mum off? I'm so scared. <laughs> I don't think that'll ever go away. To be honest, oh, mum will always wow. be mum. Will always be mum for sure. Yeah. And uh, I guess to sort of segue on, uh, growing up Asian in Australia is at twelve years old. We we believe, yes. and I guess the question I have it is right like, here. oh, it's been such a good book, Alice. <laughs> and uh, we, we guess we're interested to hear thoughts on what do you what do you think has changed about growing up Asian in Australia, and what hasn't changed about growing up in Australia, and you know what what does the future of the Asian Australian identity look like? Obviously, it's when we look across the water, we look at America. There's the Asian American identity seems a bit more progressed than it is over yes. here. Um, it obviously has something to do with the, the periods of immigration that occurred, but we're always interested in thinking about like, what is like the Asian Australian identity and like, has it changed? And like, we're keen to hear your perspective on that. Um, oh, look, I can't speak for all the 52 authors in growing up Asian in Australia, but it's interesting you mention America because, you know, when I was researching this book 15 years ago, Asian Americans have so far progressed because what they did was, you know, America had the civil rights movement and that was very mm. big and it was um, black Americans wanting their rights. But then Asian Americans, you know, um, uh, took advantage of that momentum. They supported their black friends, but they also called for their own civil rights. And so 15 years ago when I went to the States, it was amazing. They had their own um, Asian-American studies departments and universities. We don't have any Asian-Australian departments, you know, whole departments no. dedicated to Asian-Australian studies. We have Asian studies but no Asian-Australian mm. studies. Um, so I guess not much has changed, to be honest, in Australia. We're still pretty racist not as individuals or human beings, but just as um, as a political uh, system and as yeah. in the media as well. <laughs> it's still pretty racist. Mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I feel like just on that point about racism, because um, it was quite telling reading some of the anthologies in this book about, you know, people's experiences of, of you know, being called um, derogatory words. And I, I feel like at least in my experience of racism in Australia, I don't experience so much of overt racism as I do with microaggressions. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, in your perspective, like, do you think that is just as bad or it's mm. worse? Or if yeah, it's is it an good... improvement? Oh, yeah, is, is it an improvement? Oh, I'll Could tell you what, it's a wonderful it. improvement. Now that you mentioned it, it's such a great thing. Uh, 15 years ago, we and growing up, I didn't have that terminology. We didn't have microaggressions and we didn't have a way to describe these subtle things mm. that happened to us We and we thought it was probably us. We're meant to suck it up. We're being too sensitive. 
you know, you can't take a joke if you're not Australian enough. And that language, I think, came from the States. And language illuminates. And then you realise, oh, it's not me. It's not me that's overly sensitive. It's this whole society that's, um, <laughs> you know, not acknowledging the fact that uh, people might be unconsciously biased against us. So we didn't have this language um, of cultural appropriation or microaggressions and things like that. And I think it's a, it's a good thing that you've got the language to describe this very mm. specific experience. Otherwise, you think you're going mad. We didn't have the term gaslighting, but that's exactly what it is, mm. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. No, for sure. I think, yeah, I think the, the power to describe something and just a general broader societal understanding of what these things are and acknowledgement of them really does it, help yeah. the, the situation. It illuminates things, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it really yeah. does. It really does. I mean, one thing I could maybe um, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but that might have improved is potentially just the amount of Asian food in Australia. <laughs> That's so true. Maybe Probably. that's like a good vehicle to like <laughs> undoing racism. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it has to be like it's yeah. uh, people when people go out to eat. It's yeah, people like to like go into pubs for stuff, but like everything Asian and mm. like the options are so plentiful and now it's it's not just chinese food it's actually oh i actually know the difference between southern chinese food mm, and mm-hmm. sichuan chinese food and this this vocabulary and this like literacy around different parts of asia being not just one place but all the different little bits is i think that's generally getting better and if that's if that's a signal for improvement i feel like it can only it can only go mm. up from here like this like exp- like the ability to consume a culture without actually being there through food and through talking to the people and also a heightened awareness of language around things that are um, derogatory or, or racist it's i feel it's only going to get better um, and that that's sort of the sentiment that we share we we talked about it last week with Keithy it's it's only going to get better with it, with these things well that's what we hope oh that's I wonderful like that's where we're headed yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, do you yeah. share the same hope Alice or are you do you fall more in the cynical camp about where Australia is headed in terms oh. of I guess race relations oh look that I'll answer honestly I, I don't think I'm cynical um, but I think it's realistic to say that certain Asians are uh, are loved more than others you know, because I've been both kinds of Asians. You know, the comedian Ali Wong says there's two types of Asians. There's the mm. um, jungle Asian and there's the posh mm. Asian. <laughs> mm. So, you know, growing up in Braybrook, we were the jungle Asians. We brought in drugs and diseases. We stole jobs. People hated us. You know, just, you, you just, yeah, it was unpleasant, <laughs> the overt racism. And now, um, now that I'm middle class and I write books, I don't get that much of the overt racism just because I'm not in those environments where you're with poor and disenfranchised working class people who think you've stolen their job. You're, you're just with very educated, <laughs> you know, liberal people who, who work with you or who um, are alongside you. And so it's good for me. I, I like being a middle class Asian. <laughs> I like being considered clean and not bearer of disease. Um, but for the... The young Asian Australians that I see and sometimes mentors, so say the Burmese Australians uh, especially, they still get the same treatment. <laughs> They're exactly the same, you know. The Filipino Australians, uh, it's yeah. a class thing. I, I talk about class a lot in my books 
I, I don't know if it's probably it started off subconsciously because you know, <laughs> but now I'm I'm quite aware of it that um, and prime ministers and presidents talk about class. I mean, what, why do they dislike Mexicans so much? And, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. I, I think it's uh, cyclic. Once once you've uh, established that you can contribute to society, whether it, it be, uh, whether you become the family doctor or whether you just open the takeaway restaurant or whether they're dependent on you for getting their nails done, you're accepted because you know, you're part of their society. But otherwise... Um, yeah, you're stealing jobs. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I I don't think I've ever seen that segment of Ali Wong, but now I really want to. Like, I guess, I guess this dichotomy between jungle Asian and posh Asian. Oh, yeah. I, I'll tell you what she says. She says there's two types of Asian because she's both. She's half um, mm. Vietnamese and half Chinese. She says mm. the posh Asians host things like Olympics, you know, the Chinese and the Japanese, and the jungle Asians mm. host things like diseases. So, oh my gosh. yeah, oh my gosh. no, that is that it's is so funny. A, it's so true. No, that's, yeah, that's hilarious, but it's so it's so uh, piercing, right? I know. I, I feel like that narrative is so correct, just in terms of how I guess Asians are just viewed within this broader kind of Western framework. I right? know, and they love like Westerners love movies like Crazy Rich Asians or Crouching Tiger, Hidden mm. Dragon. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> not so much their Burmese neighbours with, like, you know, seven kids and that kind of thing, but they don't have to live with these people. The people who mm. support refugees live in Fitzroy. The people who live among those refugees live in, um, you know, Werribee or Sunbury. And they're, um, and the, the Fitzroy people see all those bogans, they're, they're so racist, but they live alongside yeah. refugees. Their yeah. kids go to school with the refugees. <laughs> so... Mm. There's not that dichotomy. I, my best friend in primary school, her dad supported One Nation, but he loved us. So I don't think people are their politics. I've never believed that. This is the, yeah, this was the whole thing I, I had around crazy rich Asians. And it really <laughs> does talk to this, like once people start being able to understand the different parts of Asia, then almost subconsciously there's a, they might start to rank them. Just yes. like how people might rank countries within <laughs> Europe or they might rank countries anywhere across the world. And I read something along the other day where it was racism will continue to exist until the country that people are from become an economic power. Oh, okay. It, uh, and it was, it, it kind of makes you think, doesn't it? You sort of think about the countries like, I think China's a big example. It's uh, now it's getting to the point where people are worried and that's <laughs> yes. what sort of that's what's a, like you didn't care in like the 80s and stuff where you wanted cheap labor and you, know, like you just injected way too much money into the country you're freaking out oh, <laughs> that's so true but yeah but just i'm kind of divulging from the point but once you have things like crazy rich asians or like things like k-pop you start to see like oh there's actually there's tears yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. Like these and Asians do these, these type of Asians yeah, do Yeah, and then oh, these yeah. Asians do this. And there's and cool Asians, creating... yeah, like yeah, K-pop yeah. Asians. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And then you're just creating new stereotypes. Yeah. And then it's like the cycle <laughs> continues, doesn't it? Oh, my God. Um, how do we break the cycle, Alex? How do you break I don't know, cycle? but I love K-pop because, you know, I go to high schools and, and there's Indian girls and white girls and they love K-pop and I, I think – you know, there's this myth in the Western world that Asian men are not attractive, and that is not mm. true. Kids don't believe that shit. You know, mm. yeah. Yeah. 
No, I love that. <laughs> K-pop has done a lot of good for the oh, world. Oh, it's done and so much like good. That, that whole industry is just crazy. I've, I've watched a couple of videos <laughs> into how they select the idols. Oh, really? Can you tell us? How... It's it's so competitive. Oh. So they go to these academies. I'm, I'm sure someone's going to correct me. I'm not really into K-pop myself, but I, I was reading some, I was watching something and they go to these academies and they train like every single day, like oh, nonstop man. dancing, mm. singing and fitness regimes. And you might not get selected. Like the only very few get selected and it's like a really, really tough life. And I think oh, over the last couple of years, quite a few K-pop stars have, have, yeah, have actually like committed suicide and it was wow. like it's this really intense industry and i think behind all the glitz and glamour there's quite a bit of like pain and and struggle to make it because it's so competitive but i mean once they once they make it it's mm. it's 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 a lot of money and it's a, it's a lot of fame and you, you're loved across the world like k-pop is more popular outside of korea than it is within korea oh really i, I, I didn't know that yeah i think I, yeah i think i read something about that which just make just makes you sort of realize how powerful it is, and it's just like an incentive for the country as well. It's you're emanating like soft power across the world. People yeah. going to Korea just to that's true. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, so mm. it's like that's what Japan's done as well. Japan's done a great job of doing that with um with anime and the food and stuff. So, yeah. mm. um, well, well, I don't actually remember why we started talking about K-pop. <laughs> no, it's so. hard. It's a great um, but I, don't know, I, I just think it's so interesting though because I, I, I do remember a time when things like liking K-pop or liking anime was not cool. It wasn't cool. It wasn't oh. cool. It oh, was not did you, cool. Did you experience yeah. that as well, Alice? Or maybe it was just maybe no, it was no, just my environment? No, no, we did as well with anime. Um, so I grew up in the 90s. I was a teenager in the 90s. Yeah, it wasn't cool to like... Uh, it, it, we had J-pop back then. It was a niche thing. Oh. You only liked it if you're Asian. Oh my God. And we had Cantonese yeah. pop, Canto pop with oh my Andy Kwok. And, you, know, <laughs> you know those, um, those older veteran uh, <laughs> yes. oh stars? Yeah. It wasn't yeah. cool unless you were Asian. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. white yeah. people yeah. were yeah, into sure. that. <laughs> they thought it was weird yeah they thought it was weird i had like an emo phase and i only really listened to like j j rock that is so great. like japanese like emo kind of rock oh and, and they're they really angry big... they're not faking it because they're so impressed. yeah yeah it's yeah. like a lot of like screamo elements yes uh, and they have like the most wild hairstyles <laughs> and uh, you know i try to grow a fringe out and there's a chubby boy it's really oh. Oh, that's terrific. Um, so I'm currently studying law as well. Oh, good and on you. I'm curious to hear yeah. how you navigated the legal industry as an Asian woman. I think you're one of the very, very few Asian Australian lawyers I know, much less an Asian woman, to be honest. Um, and I just wondered how you found navigating that industry, especially um, at, at an era where ostensibly, I'm assuming it was a lot more racist or at least, you know, hiring policies weren't as um i guess inclusive and that diverse as i i think they would have improved from now um but yeah I, i'm curious to hear your experience oh uh, so they did have uh policies of diversity but it wasn't mm. really diverse because the interview panels that i went on were uh partners and partners tended to be older white men uh that's mm. a cliche yeah. but that's that's my experience. So you'd be it's still the same too. And they put a woman in so that you'd have a woman interviewing you. So what was interesting is was I got a lot of interviews. On paper I looked quite good. I had a lot of work experience. Um, I'd been, you know, I'd drafted employment contracts, I'd gone to um, 
VCAT, Victorian Civil Administrative mm. Appeals Tribunal, went to the unfair dismissals um, court from a, from a young age, 19, 20. So I had all this experience. All these firms wanted me. But then when I sat down for the interviews, um, two things, they realised all this experience came from my dad's business because he got me to write his employment contracts and, you know, <laughs> represent him in court. And that's legitimate experience as opposed to some of my peers who did clerkships mm. where they just photocopy things. But that didn't matter mm. in those firms. And the other, the other thing was that I had no idea how I presented myself because, mm. you know, um, with the, my Vietnamese friends and growing up in Footscray, the way you look classy was you wore a lot of black with a lot of jewellery, you know. <laughs> uh, it showed that firstly you were classy because you wore a lot of black if you wore a lot of jewellery, because we're, you know, if, if you're from a poor Asian country, it means that you, you, you're wealthy. So my mum blinged me up with jewellery. My dad gave me his Panasonic folder from Retrovision, <laughs> which was, and he said, this is a leather folder. They'll, they'll be impressed by this. It had Panasonic printed in big gold letters. It, oh, I look so, <laughs> what do you call it? I look like, um, I look tacky, firstly, but I didn't know because you, you don't know. Um, it's a class thing. You know, in India, they're really colourful because they're poor and colour is the, the joy of life and they wear all their gold bangles in their wedding. So that's what I, I looked um, I looked tacky, to be honest, and my friend uh, took me aside and she, she went through law school with me and she was an Anglo-Australian friend whose dad was a lawyer. I was very lucky to know him because she's eight years older than me and she said, Alice, look, you can borrow my Oriton bag. And I said, why would I borrow your bag? And she said, because, and I, I took no offense at this, she said, people look at you and they will situate you in the front desk at reception where you belong. So you've got to borrow my Oriton bag and um, not carry that Panasonic thing around and wear less mm. gold. And so that's what I did. Now, I didn't get any jobs at the big firms, but there was a small firm in Port Melbourne where the, there were only two partners, one was Italian and one was Jewish. And um, I was always honest in my interviews because I didn't want to be someone I wasn't. And when they found mm. out I worked for my dad's business because these two men had started from small businesses and one hadn't even got a law degree. He just went through RMIT and, you know, back in the 50s, the Italian guy could become a lawyer that way. They, they respected that. They said, oh, you work from the ground up. You've got business experience. So... You know, you're perfect for our firm. So that's, that's how I got my first job. It paid minimum wage, which was, um, I think, 21000 uh, a year. And no one knows. Like, oh, wow. if you look at the minimum wage for lawyers, it's, it's the minimum wage because no one expects to be paid that much. And then a year later, I got a promotion, like, you know, 23000 <laughs> It was just, um, it was a different time back then. And um, mm. I think... Uh, there, there was diversity because there were a lot of women who went through law school with me who were Asian, um, but, but they fitted in better in the big firms, I think, because they, they knew, you know, and they, had, uh, they knew how to present themselves and hmm. they didn't talk about the family business. So I don't know if I have any advice, <laughs> except just no, to be yourself no. because you will land the job mm. where you're meant to be. I wasn't meant to be. Mm. Price, Waterhouse, oh, whatever those firms were, <laughs> Gaydon's, <laughs> Alan's, Arthur Robinson. It wasn't like I didn't get interviews. They just didn't want me, but that's okay. That's not where I belonged. 
you don't want to try really hard at a place you don't belong. <laughs> mm. Yeah. 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 Mm. They're lost. No, no I, I, I think it's so interesting to just kind of, you know, like hear about that experience and I guess um, try and situate that in like this context oh. and whether or not there are still similarities or differences i would broadly say that it, it is still the same to an extent in so far as you still have like these structures in place that do privilege white people in interviews in situations where if you're in a room with two partners yes one may be a woman but she's still going to be a white woman you know obviously you're drawn to people who you know look like you speak like you have the same interests as you so I st- and you know and I, I think like that happens like at the expense of people who may look good on paper and who may come from minority backgrounds but then when they get to the interview stage it's it's different yeah. you know? and I think like these gatekeepers I think are still there and I, I mm. still feel like those structural changes have not changed because yes old white men yeah. still or even or they have subconscious kind of, biases so they don't mean to discriminate correct. against you yeah, but if you exactly. walk in and you have a Sri Lankan accent and you speak perfect English automatically they'll have that they'll think oh you know i can't understand this person properly what are our clients going to think this isn't a you know call center even if you're just as talented what's so interesting was i was on a panel two months ago with this other asian australian lawyer this wonderful wonderful young woman who um started her own business and she was actually adopted so she grew up in a very white household, you know. Her parents said, you can be whatever you want. And she was very ambitious and, mm. and just lovely. But she said that in she got all these interviews and she got law jobs easily because she used her ethnicity as a kind of um, uh, like a selling point. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, mm. um, you know, I, I know the Asian market because I'm Korean. And she, because she was so Australian, because her parents are Australian, uh, she presented really well in interviews, except she had this Korean thing, and she said, "I know nothing about Korea. I can't even speak the language." But that was an enhancement. <laughs> but she said, "But I had the um, advantages to begin with. I presented as a completely white person with um, with these enhancements, as opposed to being Asian. Do you know what I mean? Being Asian and trying yeah. to be as white yeah. as you can. She already was that. That was her base starting point, <laughs> and her." yeah yeah i i kind of hate how that has to happen though like that you need this proximity to white oh i know get the gig in order to get i'm not talking yeah we're not talking about color are we we're talking about everything golf um you know hobbies i don't know no accent yeah 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 Yeah. i i I mean you know we had this conversation with kathy in you know corporate leadership and diversity and i think ultimately i'm still hopeful and i think jeff and i me um, too I do share the sentiment that we are on a good track. I will be sometimes it may regress. We will take like, you know, two steps back, one step forward, five steps yeah. back. But I do think that hopefully this will be a generational thing. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fantastic that you have people like you, Alice, who are in the industry and writing about it as well. I think the, the ability to be at a place where obviously you're advocating, but at the same time you have the ability to write as an author and have impact through that meant that through those means as well i think um yeah it's fantastic oh thank you so much thank you (laughs) we wanted to start this uh, new thing where we ask all our guests if you had to pick one person to be on this podcast who would you like to see oh oh that is a great question um i'd really like to see adam bell the the 
television chef because he's more than a chef. He's just oh, a really excellent writer. Is. This is coming from another writer. He was the one who actually taught me there's no such thing as preheat. You know, every recipe book says preheat your oven to 200 degrees. He says, what's preheat? You're just heating mm. something up. And it's that carefulness of language that I admire about him and his cookbooks. But also he's just a really mm. nice guy because I met him once with a baby. I'm always carrying babies. And um, he said that I could use his tent to feed my baby. So, you know, I really, he, he's just such a lovely guy, um, nice family man as well. No, he seems it, he seems it for sure. And his speech last year at the... Um... The Asian Australian Summit, I think the Leadership Summit was a was oh, an excellent okay. speech, and you can just tell. I love watching his YouTube videos to relax. <laughs> do, you, do you watch them? <laughs> the recipes he's got this like really yes, calming music in the background, does. and you don't you don't hear the the the, the walks and the or just like the pans no, like scratch don't. and stuff. It's just yeah. very kind of peaceful, and he's got this like soothing voice, which would be yes. Very perfect for a podcast. So, yes. Adam, <laughs> hopefully, if you're see listening to this, Adam, you listening? Get on to this? his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we just talked about, I guess, you know, how difficult it is to navigate the legal profession, or I guess, more difficult it is to navigate the legal profession as a minority. Do you find that that also translates into writing? How is the writing industry in Australia, and I guess, being an Asian woman? Oh, I, I love that question because there's so many wonderful Asian women writers out there now, you know, doing all sorts of fascinating things like Leanne Hall and, and that younger writer, Marina Lau, who, who writes this really, you know, um, experimental fiction. Um, but back when I started out, about 15 years ago, uh, there weren't that many Asian Australian voices getting interesting work published except for my friend Tom Cho, who, who, was, um, who wrote you know, really great postmodern, gender-bending stuff before the time was right. So I felt I was very lucky that when my book came out, the clever people at Black Ink, instead of marketing it as it was a book of family stories, they marketed it as a memoir. And memoirs were big then because we mm. had, um, you know, falling leaves and wild swans. But all those stories told a specific way of being a Chinese woman or an Asian woman. They're all quite kind of tragic and, you know, mm. like Madame Butterfly mm. narratives, mm. Very, very melodramatic and sad and triumphant at the end. And um, my, my first book, I, I didn't want it to be like that because I, I didn't survive great odds or anything like that back then. So um, so the, the world has changed in Australia, the publishing world, for the better, I think. And I think it's also because we have uh, diverse editors and diverse judges, not as many as we hope we'd have, but it makes a real difference. Mm. There's this wonderful writer, Melanie Cheng. Um, she's also a GP. And I think um, she won the Victorian Premier's Award, which is this huge deal. Mm. you know. And I think that year it was because the judges included this wonderful reviewer from the, um, the big issue named Tweet On, an Asian-Australian reviewer um and she because of that diversity that book was not overlooked because it was the first book you know? mm. so yeah diversity in panels and, and at the editorial level really matters you don't have to explain things so often i've had to explain very basic things to editors i've had things cut out just because they made no sense even 
though they made sense completely because I was Asian. <laughs> mm. I know that, that's, that's really promising to you, I think. Um, and I think obviously as well, having more, I guess, diverse people in Australia um, who hopefully do kind of join this industry will just let itself lend to, um, I guess, you know, more diverse writing, if that makes sense. I don't yeah. Know sense, no, and, and by diverse, well, yeah. I don't mean ethnicity. I mean going into speculative fiction or horror because oh, you're allowed to because you don't have to write about being Asian anymore, <laughs> you know. Mm. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's so much it, – it's so liberating to, I think – even hear about a story or like see a story where it has Asian characters and protagonists and it's not about like oh my identity and oh like, it's what so it's true about, you, know? you know it's the biggest difference when Unpolished Gem came out on the back cover um my heritage was spelt out you know quite clearly which I didn't mind because I'm Chinese Cambodian but with this latest book in the blurb it doesn't mention ethnicity or race at all and yeah. that's how far we've come in only 15 years it's it's just wonderful you <laughs> know yeah. yeah. No, and I think like just having a more diverse pool of talent, you just get better things. You everyone's do. Had, yeah. <laughs> it's just a more diverse line of thinking, and everyone's got all these fresh ideas, and just a, just giving them the opportunity to present it, it's just gonna make what's on offer that much better. And I think people are getting that now, and hopefully, you know, it's just. I hope it gets to the point where the talent is just talent. It's not Asian talent. It's it's, yeah. just it's just talent, talent. that's yeah. so true there's, there's, yeah there's yeah. no more just oh you know white black asians it's like talent is talent and that's like all we can you know that's what yeah. we say you know what do you guys not... think of um identity politics and um you know that you can only you should only tell your own story if you're of that particular culture i'd oh, be wow. interested because i'm a different generation and i don't believe that so you know i feel like in my experience, I feel like to talk about the Vietnamese experience or to be a uh-huh. Vietnamese Australian, I do feel like it has to come from someone with that lived experience. Yeah. Um, I completely understand the importance of, let's say, allyship, especially with white people, um, because you do need those people in order to, let's say, overcome like structural barriers to like whatever it is. But at the end of the day, I do feel like it has to be those individuals who have that lived experience that like that I think they are in like the best position and they should be in that position to kind of have that voice and that platform does that make sense Mm. yeah that makes perfect sense yeah yeah Mm. but I feel like it has to be driven by the person I mean I think you talked about it um briefly in growing up in Asian Australia introduction about how often Asians are written about by others and never about Asians and I guess this kind of the spectacle of the Asian right and yeah. I do feel like the that kind of I, I, I kind of want to analogize that to I guess identity politics and so far as I do believe it's important for the person who is let's say Vietnamese Australian or African American or whatever it yeah, is to yeah. be able to lead that but mm. be joined by allies uh-huh. but those allies should never have the final say about a certain issue or anything mm, um, mm. what do you think Jeff? Yeah no I, I agree with that and I think the, exactly to the point where I think when someone tells about a story of, of for myself just being Chinese, it should come from a Chinese person, yeah. And it should you, there's a there's a common bond, there's a common understanding when you talk to someone and they know exactly what you're talking about. When, but when someone almost speaks on your behalf, mm. I think one time some uh, 
I think it was a white person and they got more offended about something than I was and they're like why aren't you offended <laughs> and that's for you. and it's like it's that's the that, to, that's right? the point wow. where it sort of like allyship crosses it's again yes, it's power dichotomy it's like yeah. you should you should be sad you should be depressed and that that's when I have a problem with it yep. and then the second part and we can go back to that the second part is I think the whole thing with identity politics is blown up uh-huh. to the point where it's almost defeating its purpose. It's, I think it should be about sharing stories and it should be this open environment where people talk about their experiences on an even playing field, not this sort of trauma Olympics where it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I had more, I had more hardship growing up. Yeah, I was yeah. more oppressed than you were. Yeah. And it's like they take pride in this. I was hurt and yeah. I, you know, other people, if you don't agree with that, that's 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 not that's your problem and like i hate you but it just becomes such a dichotomy between different groups where it's if you're not with us you're against us and Mm. i think this is the mentality that gets really dangerous Mm. you know we we the world is apparently getting more progressive but people are just getting more angry about things and much more easily like we talked about things like cancel culture like these are all (laughs) things that are quite backwards i think it's it's pushing us back it's not pushing us forward just when someone doesn't agree with you that the first reaction the knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be to tell them that you're wrong it should be you should try to understand their point of view which i think the state of identity politics is not heading that way it's just you're with us or you're against us and that's kind of where i feel like we're at yeah what do you think alice oh i think this should totally be in the podcast i mean i i couldn't articulate it as well as you both could i i don't know how you that that's just so Perfect. I've been thinking about this and thinking about it so that you've, you've just hit the nail on the head. So your story was interesting, Sarah. I agree with you completely. Did you ever read The Coconut Children by Vivian Tan? Oh, it's one of my favourite books. She's only, she was only 16 when she wrote it and I think it came out this year. I can send it to you actually. I have a copy um, and it's this Vietnamese-Australian uh, growing up in 1998 in Cabramatta, and she wrote mm. this, and she was born in the year 2000. So she said it in a time when she wasn't even born, but that was the exact time I was growing up. I was 17 years old, and everything was so true and resonant in that book. It's my favourite book of the year, The Coconut Children. When I was growing up, I read some books by white authors about Cambodian people and about, you know, which were really good. I, I really liked them. So I don't think a white person can't write a good story, especially if they're writing um, for, for children. You know, you, you can write a good story. So every year I get to the pleasure of writing these puffs, but also sometimes the torment, because I'll get these books come in. So they might be from a Sudanese writer, an Iranian author, whatever the author in vogue, whatever the culture in vogue mm. is and whatever gap they need to fill. You know, oh, we don't have a Burmese voice, we don't have an Iranian voice, but to be completely honest, these books sound so similar because it's a white person not extracting the person's voice but extracting their story. So they'll find a refugee with a story to tell about the Taliban and then they'll get that book written in a year just by, um, you know, leeching this story out of this person and then it will sell quite well. Maybe if they're lucky, a film will be made, but for the most part, these books end up in the $10 bookshops because the books that are enduring are the books that have a, a voice, you know, a very unique voice. These are just narrative books and it's so exploitative to get a refugee story 
to sell a book because you need to fill a gap about Iran or about Sudan or Burma. Yeah. yeah. And then once that gap is filled and you've done your year of Christmas sales to discard that person's life in the $10, you know, <laughs> bookshops in the mm. city. Um, and that's why I never write puffs for those books because yeah. they're, they're not, they don't have a person's voice. They're just narratives. They're just stories. Mm. That's what the commercial yeah. publishing world does to our stories. Yeah. Diversity just feels like a checklist now, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And you're flattered if you, mm. English is um, not your first language or if you um, haven't cultivated your writing voice yet and the big publisher says, I want to tell your story, you'll say yes, yeah, <laughs> and you agree to all the conditions. You don't realise it takes you five or six years to write a proper book that has your own voice in it. Does that make sense? That's average, oh, how, yes. how long it no, takes me to mentor sure. a person, you know, to get a book from start to finish in their own voice. I think, like, when you were talking about, like, having almost, like, a catalogue to fill, <laughs> it it's is. almost like, oh, we, like, it's, like, the thing I picture in my mind is just this one, someone who just has, like, a like a clipboard and there's all these boxes, like, we need Asian, yeah, black, they do LGBT, that. Yeah. and there's just, like, a pop them on display, all right, we're good for the year. We're sorted. It's like my the thing I laugh about all the time is when it's Pride Month and all companies change their logos <laughs> on LinkedIn with a, to a rainbow flag. That's so funny. That is like that is a, every year yeah. it, ha- it happens. I'm like, what? What? Do you, like you're not. You're not doing it. <laughs> it's like a it's a presentation thing. Diversity oh, now that's is true. A, you're right. It, it just feels like a very we're okay. Don't roast us. Like we're we're doing yeah. our bit. Mm. And we're presenting it and peacocking as much. Oh, as we peacocking! Can. That's such a good word. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> oh yeah, I picked that one up. Not like those. Actually, in terms of words, I guess we can talk about as a writer. Peacocking was one I picked up uh, a couple months ago, and one that I've kind of been abusing a bit too much because it kind of works in a lot of contexts. Is like trauma. Oh, bonded. what is that? What does that mean? It's. It's kind of like, you know, when you go through something kind of bad, like if you had a really oh, bad yeah, yeah. bus ride with somebody, but you went through it together, there's a shared common shared yeah. common experience and you kind of bond wow, off that. Wow, that, that is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a lot of people refer it to like children yeah. of immigrants. Like we went through like uh, this podcast <laughs> in a lot of ways is built upon like a lot that. of shared experiences Trauma-bonded. that could be described as yeah. as traumatic. But I feel like I'm sort of abusing the word a little bit. Oh man, it's been wonderful talking oh. to you both. Yeah, absolutely. Same. It's been it's been amazing. Thank you so much again, Alice. It has been such a genuine delight. Oh, thank you for yeah. having me. A great thank start you. to the year. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. No worries. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. If you enjoy this podcast, uh, show us a bit of love by clicking the subscribe or follow button. Otherwise, we'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later. Bye.